Morning, Glory America. It's Hugh Hewitt. So glad to be back in the Beltway. Thanks to Joe Concha for taking the first two hours this morning as I got settled in. I'm joined by Matt Spaulding this morning as the Hillsdale Dialogue, the last hour of the radio week, gets underway. Dr. Spaulding is, of course, the director of Hillsdale College's Kirby Center, the lantern in the shadow of the Capitol that breathes out freedom and shines forth every single day. Matt Spaulding, how are you? Uh, good morning, Hugh. How are you? I am terrific. Great I'm, to be with you. I've got my traveling uh, boots on, but I, I wanted to cover with you especially this week. All things Hillsdale, by the way, at hillsdale.edu. All of my conversations with Matt Spaulding, Dr. Larry R., and other members of the faculty dating back to 2013 are collected at hugh4hillsdale.com. Got a note this week that someone was binge listening in the gym, and I'm glad about that. This week, though, is more current events than the great works of Western civilization because Kirby made a big announcement this week. Michael Anton, the infamous or famous author of the Flight 93 election, former spokesperson at the National Security Council, friend of the show. He's been on the show before. He arranged my interview with H.R. McMaster last year. Great guy. Has joined the Kirby Center. Tell us about that, Matt Spaulding. He has. He has. Well, uh, Mike Anton is a, a great thinker. Uh, great writer, great mind. Uh, his background is actually not in national security as much as uh, political thought, American history, uh, but he also writes on a, a number of other things. Uh, he was very much involved uh, in both some aggra- very aggressive essays leading into the election of uh, the president, and he went into the National Security Council as the spokesman. Uh, he actually came in before, but was there for the whole period of uh, McMaster, and uh, we had been talking for some months, uh, actually, about his coming over here to Kirby. He'd like to get back into writing. Uh, he's interested in doing some lecturing and, and being involved in our programs. And as you know, and perhaps not your listeners, but uh, Hillsdale is building and has been building a larger presence and footprint here in D.C. to uh, shape thinking about the most important questions along the lines that we, that we teach. It's a radiation of our teaching. And in that sense, um, his wanting to come over here to, to, to get out of the White House, uh, president called him, was very thankful for his help, uh, he, but he wanted to get back into the, the, this world and, and go back to his real love, which is uh, writing and thinking and talking. And uh, in terms of our expansion plans and our building and eventually having, our, having a graduate program here in Washington, D.C., expanding our influence in the administrations and on the Hill and in think tanks, uh, he's a he's a great acquisition, great fit, and, and an old friend of mine and, and Dr. Arns, and will be great to have here. Uh, you know, Matt Spaulding, I'm very bummed personally. I'm just selfish about these things. When you when the <laughs> National Security Council deputy will call you up and be on your show, that's a good thing for the radio show. Plus, he actually knew what he was talking about as opposed to the right. previous administration when their national security spokesperson was Ben Rhodes, and it was often incoherent to the point. I mean, almost laughably incoherent. Mike Anton brought a great ability to translate what was going on around the world into the audience ability to grasp what the Trumpian approach to America first was. No, I, I think that's that's actually right. I think he was probably one of the most articulate, although, you know, there there's some of uh, other people over there, but one of the most articulate of what a Trumpian foreign policy should look like, both in, in theory and practice. And he was very good at that. Uh, I think he'll be missed. I think it's it's uh, you know 
it's um, uh, his leaving the administration is is a blow to the administration. Having said that, it's a, a great a windfall to Kirby. Yeah, that's. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I, I think he can uh, in writing outside of you. There, there's so much he couldn't write about on his own uh, over there. I think he'll be freed up now to write, perhaps even more strongly, to to voice that argument. Uh, not only in foreign policy, but in other areas, and defend and think about what's going on right now and articulate it in the public print. So uh, so I think in, a, in an odd way, it actually might be, uh, it's an immediate loss, uh, but it's a, 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 from a larger perspective, I think it's a, it's a win for those who are trying to articulate and think through how we're going forward in our politics. You know, Kirby has become, and I, in the think tank wars and in the Washington, D.C. Beltway uh, battles over influence, Kirby has become the neutral ground. I really do believe it is the lantern in the shadow of the Capitol where everyone can repair to, to have a cup of coffee and actually talk uh, amicably and civilly about disagreements on policy. Do you agree with me about that, Matt Spaulding? Well, of course I do, but it's also because you have to understand we have a different model. One of the reasons why I actually left the think tank world and came in to, to work for Hillsdale uh, is precisely because I can now go in, I you know, talk to the Speaker, talk to members of the Hill, the administration. I'm not walking in with uh, with policy baggage or political baggage. I don't necessarily have an agenda. What I want to talk about is how to think, how to think politically, how to think in terms of constitutional politics uh, from a larger perspective of restoring the separation of powers and restoring the backs and forths that I think will lead us back to a Madisonian constitutional system. That's political. That's politics in the grand sense. It's not uh, kind of academic uh, ivory tower, but it's also not the immediately immediate partisan policy debates, which I think the think tanks have gotten, uh, you know, uh, kind of stilted on, and, and they're not as dynamic and quick and not as thoughtful. And I don't think they're actually helping our political dialogue as much as, as they used to in their grand day. So we can we can do that here in a way. Think of. Um, we don't necessarily like to think of models, but the, the Kennedy School of Government, you have fellows and thinking and seminars and a graduate program pulling all this together in a powerful way. And that's what, uh, you know, Hillsdale is headed that way, and it's great, and Michael Anton will be a part of that. Let me bring up uh, one of the things that Kirby does is provide yeah. a, a refuge for radio talk show hosts when they come to town. And I use <laughs> the Kirby studio occasionally. In the first interview that Speaker Paul Ryan gave on the radio, he gave at the Kirby Center in the studio with me on a, on a big day when he took over the speakership. Right. He came over and he, and he sat down and we spent an hour together talking about his ambitions, hopes, and dreams three-plus years ago. Your reaction upon hearing in the announcement of his intention to retire after this term? Well, you know, I've, as you know, I've, I've known Paul for a long time, going back to you know when he worked on the Hill as a staffer. Um, uh, he's his old and dear friend. I think the the lesson we've seen here is uh, the difficulty of being Speaker of the House. I, you know, uneasy rest the head that wears the crown. I think of you know Henry the Fourth, right? I mean. Um, this uh, this idea that you can control the House anymore is increasingly not clear. He was reluctant going into it. Uh, he knew this would probably happen. It was very difficult. We talked about it, but he had to do it. Um, that he's going out now, I think the timing I'm, I'm a little more nervous about. Uh, but, you know, losing his voice in Congress, but I think Congress is... Uh, is, is unable to govern and unable to do so many things right now 
that it really, unfortunately, I think is, has uh, forced him out. Uh, this is not a good time for this to happen going to an election. Uh, we need a strong speaker. We've always needed a strong speaker, and I was hoping he would, uh, he would do that. He had some great successes, some things he couldn't get to. Uh, but really, I think this tells us a lot more about Congress uh, than it does necessarily about uh, Paul Ryan. But this means the debate of the future of the Republican Party, I think, is now opened up in a way it wasn't just a few days ago. Uh, I'll, I'll come back to that after the break. But I do want to say I credit the speaker's explanation uh, completely. Having had three teenagers in the House, having had girl, yep, boy, boy. Yep, I completely uh, agree. You know, it's just one of those things where you don't get those years back, especially um, young men need dad around a lot more in high yep. school, maybe even more. Young girls do, too. But but young men and freshman, sophomore, junior year, they really need dad around. And I, I took to heart that he's just been a weekend dad. His kids have only known him as a weekend dad. No, and, and, I, I, I think he's being completely honest about that. That's absolutely true. We've talked many times. I see his, his wife comes back often to things, but you don't, you know, the kids know. That's they were uh, born when he was uh, becoming a congressman. They're now teenagers. Absolutely. I take that seriously. I also think he needs to go back to Wisconsin for his own political future. Uh, so that when he runs for president, he can come from someplace else. <laughs> now, now I, I was going to say, I believe in uh, two acts in American life. This one's going to be a third act. There was the vice presidency. There's the speakership. Now there's going to be some retirement, some reflection. I wouldn't be surprised to see him write. And then I wouldn't be surprised to see him run either governor, I, senator or president. Your thoughts on that, Matt yep. Spaulding? I, I absolutely agree. Uh, Paul is smart. He knows what's going on in this country. He's got a larger vision that we need to hear about America. He's got an established way of thinking, uh, by, by which I don't mean establishment. I think an important voice in American politics. I think in the Trump world, it's become uh, hard for him to articulate that. I don't, he's, we know he's not uh, uh, completely copacetic with the president. He's not an anti-Trumper. Um, but I think that uh, maneuvering is harder for him in this context. Uh, so I think uh, his, because of the nature of Congress and because of the Trump presidency, this is a time for him to re, uh, reposition himself. But I think he does have higher ambitions for the good of the country. I will be right back with Dr. Matthew Spaulding, director of the Kirby Center. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, hillsdale.edu for all the wonderful online courses. Hugh for Hillsdale for all of our previous conversations. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Last radio hour of the week means the Hillsdale Dialogue here on the Hugh Hewitt Show. For all our new affiliates up in New York, along, uh, well, all from Elmira to all along the, the, the tier there, welcome. And every single week at this hour, I'm joined by someone from Hillsdale, either Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of the college, Dr. Matthew Spaulding, the chair and the, the leader of the Kirby Center at Hillsdale's Lighthouse in Washington, D.C., one of the members of the faculty or staff at Hillsdale, one of their schools, to talk about big ideas and big issues. But this week, we're talking about big headlines. And Matt Spaulding is my guest, longtime uh, maneuverer within the Beltway. He's seen it all, but I don't think he's ever seen a president's lawyer's personal offices swept. And Matt Spaulding, this raises a serious separation of powers issue. We talked last hour about how uh, Kirby tries to combine Madisonian government with the current events of the day. What was your reaction to this? Because I've got a very strong <laughs> negative reaction to this. Oh, I, I, I think this is um, uh, amazingly um, uh, unusual. And I think this is a big deal. And I think it's politically unprecedented 
uh, in American history for someone to go after the private lawyer of the president of the United States. If they don't have extremely good reasons for doing what they did, uh, which is a very significant legal question, uh, they will have a very high price to pay. Uh, I, I think this this is um, uh, you know if if I were the president, I would I would I would hope his lawyers are telling him to seriously rethink his discussions with the the investigation uh, to pull back quite a bit. But having said that, I would be worried probably less about Mueller than I would be about Mr. Cohen right now. Um, and what they're going after, because this is not about Russian collusion anymore. This is about something else. Uh, And I'm not sure how to phrase this. The the special counsels have always gone off the reservation. Mueller didn't. He said he found something. Now, I I happen to believe that Mueller's team wants the fruits of the poison tree. They they want this seized material, and it's not poisoned yet, but I think they're going to find out that uh, upon review, a whole bunch of stuff was taken out of there. Because if you think about a private lawyer's office, uh, your, your most confidential lawyer, he's going to have his testamentary documents, his trust in the state. going to have all his divorce settlements. going to have every right, non-disclosure right. agreement he ever signed. Uh, it's going to be the most sensitive stuff. I don't even know where it is. I don't know if it's in a, a sensitive compartment information facility, a SCIF. I know that everyone hostile to the United States wants those documents. And I'm not, I just don't have confidence in the Bureau keeping them safe. Do you? Well, they're, they're, there's, a, there's a procedure that should be followed. There, there are some actual particular rules about something like this. I mean, to, to overcome a attorney-client privilege, you have to go through a much harder procedure. It had to be signed off in the, signed off in the Justice Department. Um, and then that material is, is taken, and they have to set up a, a special group to look at it, or maybe a special master. Uh, the people who are actually... Uh, initially asked for the documents, they're not going to see everything. They're only going to see things pertinent to what they were looking for. Having said that, I have very little confidence here in what is uh, uh, what, what is going on. Uh, but Hugh, I, I think it's significant that um, this is. I think this is actually, in many ways, a less a Mueller question about his investigation. He went to the Justice Department with a set of questions. Um, that we now know from the memo released by uh, Rosenstein um, probably did not include looking for some of the information that supposedly that he would, uh, was looking for. So he did actually send this uh, to the attorney, uh, U.S. attorney in the South District of New York and turn it over to the FBI. So there is some separation here between the Mueller investigation and what has happened here is, is unprecedented and, I think, politically dangerous as it is. And, and I believe, we had a minute to the break, I believe that Mueller ought to be left unmolested to do his job and wrap up. There's no collusion. But I do right. think that Rod Rosenstein ought to be summoned by Chuck Grassley to answer questions about this because, and, and this is maybe what you can comment on, it's a big deal to violate attorney-client privilege. It's a massive deal. And, and to, to do it simply, you have to have very good reason and has to be overcome a, a lot of uh, assumptions here. And he signed off on it. I'd like to know about that. But this is the president of the United States. This is not mere, a mere attorney and a mere client. So I think the political signal says this is, is a, of a huge political magnitude. I will be right back with Dr. Matt Spaulding of the Kirby Center. Hillsdale.edu. We turn to Syria next. And what does a constitutional president do when confronted with weapons of mass destruction? Stay tuned, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, joined by Dr. 
Matthew Spaulding, President, Head, Chief Executive Officer of the Kirby Senator, which is uh, Hillsdale's Lighthouse in uh, Hillsdale College's Lighthouse in Washington, D.C. The Kirby Center puts on programming, invites members of Congress over the intellectuals, and Dr. Arn is often there. Matt Spaulding is always there. Their team is always there. I've covered thus far in the first two segments uh, the arrival of Michael Anton at the Kirby Center, which is great news, and the departure of Paul Ryan, as well as the astonishing raid upon Michael Cohen's office with Matt Spaulding because he's a constitutionalist. Now we turn in our last segment of this week's Hillsdale Dialogue to the biggest issue. I saved it for last, Syria. Uh, before I ask you any specific questions, what do you, we don't know what's going on exactly. We only know what we read in the newspapers and what we hear around town. But what do you think of the looming and ongoing confrontation with Syria, uh, uh, Matthew Spaulding? Well, I, I think this is... Um a, a, a very significant event. You know, what I immediately thought about to make a what is actually a historical point, I suppose, uh, is a certain parallel here with uh, the Bush administration and Saddam Hussein. Uh, the difference here being that uh, the intelligence question is less blurry. There's more we know that is, he's actually used uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, on his own people. Uh, he's known to have done so. Uh, and so that raises many of those similar questions. Bush went through this same discussion, and we know now from documents, classified documents uh, released, the discussions between the Defense Department, the State Department, NSC. Um, this caused them to rethink the question of defense. Uh, what do you do uh, when there's not an imminent threat on you, uh, but they have weapons of mass destruction, chemical or biological weapons, uh, they can deliver them. Uh, they could potentially put them in the hands of terrorists who could present you, you with a direct threat. Uh, and they made this argument about kind of preemptive defense. Uh, sometimes you have to do these kinds of things uh, for strategic reasons. And uh, the use of force becomes a legitimate, uh, legitimate concern in, in taking such actions. And I think he was very clear that Assad, as he says, is, is, is an animal. Um, and uh, making that case as a threat to the United States, I think, is a uh, legitimate act. Uh, and uh, the way he's presumably thinking through it with his military advisors, um, not necessarily in his uh, Twitter feed, but I, I assume they're thinking through this, the more serious plans of how to act. If, well, you know, let, let's pause on the Twitter feed for a second. Yeah. I'm not even I, I got some pushback um, on yesterday's program from people who said the Twitter feed was inappropriate. You know what? If the idea is to put the Russians on notice that they'd better pull back and get oh, yeah. into their hidey holes, it was pretty effective in sending a message, right? That yeah, the Russians... well, you know, Assad, Assad, I'm sure, is in a, uh, a bunker as we speak. Yeah. And now let's talk a little bit about um, strategy. I had Madeleine Albright on yesterday, and she said she's worried that there's no strategy. I think, in fact, the surging of the Truman Group and the fact that we've got Theresa May on board and David Cameron could not rally the conservatives when President Obama wanted to strike Assad in 2013. The Brits would not support us. We've got Macron with us. We've got uh, Saudi Arabia. The crown prince has been in France saying, I'm with you. I, I know Israel struck um, uh, Syria. And so earlier this week, Senator Mike Roundswell on the show, and he said he hopes to have a regime-threatening response and left it at that. What do you think that means? Well, I, you know, again, I think that we, we have various parallels. I mean, you know, uh, Libya being another one. Um, how do you act in a way that uh, goes to your national security question, 
but if you're the threat here is not merely the possession of those uh, weapons, it's the use of those weapons uh, in the hands of this particular regime. And I think the modern era of terrorism this raises this question. I mean, you know, when you act, the, the, we, we learned again in, in, in Iraq that you can't act in a way that assumes these actors are rational in a way that you can kind of carefully calculate things. If you don't threaten the regime, if you don't threaten him personally, um, the threat is not as much. Uh, Hussein misread all the calculations of the Bush administration right. approaching the, the war. He didn't think they would do anything. And as a result, those threats weren't sufficient. And, and, um, and, and Assad has do done nothing. targets them. Yeah, Assad has done nothing. In fact, let me turn to the, the famous Tacitus quote. Uh, they made a desert and they called it peace. If you look at Syria now, it's it's a vast wasteland of killing. It's a butchering field. It's it's resembling our own civil war in terms of body count, which was, I think, 800,000 Americans died in the civil war. And I think we've got about 500,000 dead Syrians. And again, as many displaced people in, uh, around the world on the march out of Syria. At what point, what is Assad doing? Uh, what's the end game here? Because he actually relies on Russians, Iranians, and gangs to stay in power. Do you think he wants an exit? Uh, that's that's a good question. But I think we again are thinking it like think of this too as as uh, Western rational strategic thinkers. Uh, if this fellow is a thuggish dictator of Middle East standards. I think he's trying to maintain his position and, and give room for his uh, Russian and Iranian uh, sponsors to, to get room to act. Um, I think it's a strategic interest in our, in our hands to make sure that doesn't happen. And I think he thinks that uh, to the extent that he's got their backing, he's got a lot more freedom to act. So I, I think it's very important here to determine what the United States does and for them to do something because if they draw a red line and do nothing, I think that gives the Iranians and the Russians a, a, a free hand. And next thing you know, the Iranians are going to have, uh, you know, seaport access. I, you know, I can't imagine us not only not doing nothing, but not doing what we did last year, a one-off. Uh, 69 cruise missiles at one airport was a warning, which is if you do this again, we're going to come back and you're not going to forget it this time. The question is, and Matt Spaulding, I don't know who you've talked to about this. I don't have an opinion on this. What should our, our strategic aim be, and what about the second-order consequences? I told everyone yesterday, uh, the chief of staff to General Mattis when he was head of the, the first MEF for the Marines warned me, as just being a civilian with no military background, that I never thought enough about second-order consequences, and most civilians don't. And, uh, and subsequent, a, a different Marine, a retired two-star, said the second-order consequences will come in the Baltics and in Ukraine, meaning that Russia will push back immediately right. there. What do you think will happen upon... Uh, if our if our strike at Syria is, comes in waves and over days and weeks and not a one-off, what do you think Russia does and what are the dangers here? Well, I, I think that, uh, look, I think the Russian question is the hardest one. They will act and push back somewhere. That's uh, something they should be thinking about very seriously. Um, I think that the it's interesting that the president has talked about uh, smart weapons. Uh, I mean, technologically, we have an advantage that uh, allows us to be very pinpoint in what we do. Um, so they could actually act in a way that keeps the Syrian Air Force on the ground. You could essentially go in and destroy their ability to uh, distribute these weapons and to um, yeah, use them in their territory. Uh, so I think you'd be very precise. But 
if you let this linger or do in a way that is not immediately decisive, I think that you're going to have the Russians doing things. Uh, you're going to potentially have some um, uh, places where we come into conflict. The Iranians are going to be doing things. So I, I think that it's very important to think through all these secondary effects. But I think it worse is to do something that has virtually no effect and shows that we've backed off. I mean, this is a. I think this is an important test of our, our standing, not only in the Middle East but in the world, coming from. Uh, two great challengers to us, uh, the Iranians in the Middle East and the uh, the Russians and the Chinese, I'm sure, are watching with delight as to seeing what we do. You know, I've, I've asked everyone since this started um, at the beginning of the week whether or not we are in a slow motion Cuban missile crisis, by which I mean all of the Syrian infrastructure is now ringed by the uh, uh, S-400s. These are evidently very lethal systems described in the Telegraph in London as moving at 10,000 miles per hour and perfectly capable of taking out our cruise missiles. And they, they're very right. expensive and they're everywhere. Uh, we'd have to use stealth aircraft. They have to be manned by Russians. I can't imagine the Syrian army about whom the reports are not particularly uh, comforting. They've got to be manned by Russians. So if, you're, if they're going to actually shoot at our jets and our missiles. And, and we're make, shooting at them. We're shooting at them first. And right. so does that, do, are we really on the brink of a shooting war with Russia, which we haven't had since the white Russians, right? And Wilson sending American troops to Russia. No, this is extremely um, uh, you know, dangerous. Uh, the question we have, and, you know, and we're civilians, we don't know these, these details. Are they thinking ways uh, around that or things they can do? Uh, what is our technology relative to those? I can't. You know, I, I, I can't say, but I can think that if, if it is something where we're directly targeting known uh, assets that the Russians are controlling, that's a, a, a significant factor that we have to think through prudently as we go forward. Having said that, um, I mean, you know, they're, they're in there defending uh, Assad and given what he's done uh, and the strategic threat to us, I, I think this is a, a question we've got to work ourselves work ourselves through. And I have great confidence in our military uh, leaders and our thinking. And also, I think they've been working and advancing our technology uh, in ways that, from what I can tell, gives us some confidence to be able to still strike those targets. Now, Ambassador Bolton is new to the NSC. And obviously, he's had staff change over. You're the, you're the beneficiary of that with Michael Anton coming, but the Nadia left, the deputy, and other people are leaving, other prominent people. So he's landing in force, bringing new people. Mike Pompeo, uh, hearing yesterday, he should be confirmed very quickly. We'll get a new CIA director. We won't, right. we won't know that. I mean, are we crippled in our ability with a, you know, basically the second line in a hockey team coming onto the ice might be better than the first line, might not be. We'll find out. But it's a new line. I mean, what do well, we... it'll take them a while to warm up. I, I, I agree. And, and you know, uh, things with uh, North Korea, all, all of these things are coming along. This, this really points to the more general question about having stability in your in your in your leadership. Um, I mean. We, we need to get Pompeo in there, but we also need to get the, the national security staff uh, settled and in place so they can start uh, it, it, advising. I mean, uh, I, I, the, the military advisors or will we'll click in at a certain point. It's very important. But, you know, the national security director is the one who coordinates all this and puts it all together. And, I, and, and Bolton needs to be on top of this very quickly. And uh, he's got the, the ability to do so. Uh, but but acting with with new staff and some staff turnover is is not helpful. And and Mike Pompeo. Now this brings me to uh, Pompeo's team. 
Uh, Susan Thornton has been nominated to be the Assistant Secretary for Far Far East uh, Asian Affairs. Not uh, a shining star in the conservative firmament. Uh, A careerist and about whom there are significant doubts. Does Pompeo have to make a clean break? And, uh, you know, Brian Hooks, the, the policy planning director, he's thought of very well by almost everybody in the, in the, in the uh, conservative movement. But how much house cleaning does Mike Pompeo have to do? we got like 30 seconds. Well, I, I think he'll have to come in and do some. But, but if you recall, when he was in his previous positions, he got very high marks for working with existing staffers. Um, but he's going to come in there and put a mark on it and direct that uh, State Department and get it going again. I think they will welcome him ultimately, but but I think he needs to get the right people in place because he's going to be close to Trump. He's going to be carrying out Trump's policies, and he's got to have the people to back him I up agree. as well. Matt Spaulding from the Kirby Center, thanks for doing this week's Hillsdale Dialogue. All things at Hillsdale.edu, Hillsdale.edu, all of our conversations at hugh4hillsdale.com.